0: How is everybody? Good, so Kyle was in like that deep prayer and thought towards the end of the worship set and I look up for a second and I see Jacob's sweater over here that has Jesus holding a balloon and it says, birthday boy, yeah, stand up. It's, it's good. Here, turn around, let everyone see it. It just, <laughs> yeah, we take ourselves very seriously around here. Um, which leads us to the Christmas cards we gave you guys this year. We prayed and fasted about this for a long time, about what the Holy Spirit wanted us to do for Christmas cards, and uh, He led us to a, <laughs> a Western Run DMC theme. That's what we got, so yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, Merry, Merry Christmas, guys. That's, uh, that's the best we could do. Anyways, all right, let get rid of this. It's dumb. Oh, okay, on a serious note... Um, There are fast guides out there. I know Corey already said something about this. We've been doing this, if you've been coming to this church for any length of time, this is probably our seventh year doing this. The church is only about, it's about to be eight years old in February. We've done this, I think, every year that the church has existed. And uh, what we do is uh, we put together a 40-day devotional. It's got ideas for movies and music and recipes and restaurants in town that do uh, vegetarian dishes when we do the no meats, no sweets part of this. And this is really, really good. It's a buck, which nowhere covers our cost for printing all these. And you get a little nice little um, bracelet, which you don't need to remind you you're fasting. Your hunger will do that for you. But uh, <laughs> you can fast with us, fast the, the, uh, the media and, and all the different stuff like that. And it's great. It will change your life. The reason I started doing that, I've been doing that for about 11 years now. And uh, I started doing the fast I had a friend um, he was much older than me that that I got to know right after I got saved. He was at the church that I got saved in. Older guy named Bill Texter, great guy. This guy was an old rock star from the 50s. He used to tour with like Jerry Lee Lewis and he was signed to Johnny Cash's record label and he was good friends with Johnny Cash and dated his sister and all this stuff. And just this really cool old rock star. Got saved like I think in the 70s and was a super devoted Christian until uh, he passed away. Um, But one day Bill was uh, working in our media room And all Bill did was he would devote all of his time to duplicating sermons and he would send them to prisons all over the country. That's all he did. That's what he did with all of his time. And one day I was in there talking to Bill and um, he just didn't look good. Uh, He just looked really tired and and, uh, he had obviously lost weight and all stuff. And I asked Bill, I was like, man, are you okay? What's going on? And and he said, yeah, I got to tell you something, but you got to promise not to tell anyone. And I thought he was going to tell me he had cancer or something really bad going on. And I was like, you okay, Bill? And He said, yeah, well, every year, and he's been doing it for like 30 years at this point. He said, every year I take 40 days at the beginning of the year and I do nothing but drink distilled water and pray and read my Bible. 40 days of nothing but water. And uh, I, had, I talked to him, he was about 35 days into not eating any food, and he was just drinking distilled water. So him being in his 70s, me being in my mid-20s at the time, I was like, okay, if he can do that, I can do something, <laughs> right? So that's when I started doing the 40-day fast, and you can see if you get the guide kind of how we do that, and um, you can kind of work that around uh, how you can do it as well. And the biggest thing is cutting out all the secular media. It is huge. When you remove all that garbage from your life for 40 days, you realize how much clouds you're thinking and how much time we waste and how much gets in between us and talking to God. And uh, it's really, really good. So I encourage you to do that. And I'll bring that up again uh, kind of at the end of the lesson. Okay, so if you haven't been with us, we've been working through the Gospel of John. We've been working through chapter by chapter, line by line. We just got done with chapter 7. Last week, and this was kind of what we talked about, we talked about the law, which is the Ten Commandments essentially. There's other laws in the Old Testament, but that's kind of the bulk of it is the Ten Commandments. And we talked about how the point of the Ten Commandments is not to save us. The point of the Ten Commandments is to show us that we must be dependent on Jesus Christ to save us by his grace. Okay, That's what we talked about. The law is like a big arrow that points to Jesus and we're saved by living in Jesus and by depending on him and by his grace, okay? This week, we're gonna talk about this, that when it comes to our proximity from God, how far away or how close we are to God, that's up to us, that's up to us. It is our decision, it is our choice on how far away, how distant or how close we are to God, okay? That is our choice. Decisions we make determine the proximity the distance between us and God. Okay? That's what we're going to talk about. Okay, so we're in chapter 8. We're going to do about half of it. Yeah, yeah, about half of chapter 8. And um, it won't take too long, and we're going to go into a very famous story at the beginning of this that most of you know, whether you're a Christian or not, about the the woman who was caught in adultery, where we get the famous phrase, those without sin cast the first stone. Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. You'll be shocked at where that comes from. And um, We'll see what happens. I think you'll like it. I think you'll be interested by it. Everyone doing okay? The cold weather didn't, everyone's good and everyone made it here safely. The nine o'clock, right? People are walking in. The south is funny, right? Like if someone talks of snow, we have to go buy like all the perishable things from the grocery store, right? Which makes no sense, right? Let's get eggs and bread because we might get locked into our house. Forget canned goods and things that may last longer. Let's, let's get the things that go expire really quickly. So, um, all right, let's pray. Let's pray for me that my cynicism kind of stays at a, at a reasonable level this morning. And um, we'll pray for you that you can tolerate me and continue to come to church here. And um, that's it. All right, I'm going to quit talking. Lord, God, I love you. God, I thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for everyone in this room this morning. God, I love this church and I love the heart of this church. And Lord, you've done this, you've built this, God, and you've brought all these people together. And, I just thank you so much for that. Lord, if there's anyone in the room who may be struggling this time of year, people, God, who are maybe are not close to their families or people that have maybe uh, remembering the loss of loved ones this time of year and it's hard for them, whatever the case may be, Lord Jesus, let us remember the true meaning of this time of year, that it's about you, God, that it is about your birth and that it is about you coming into the world, God, and we celebrate, Lord, that you've brought us peace, that you've brought us joy, you've brought us contentment, God, as long as we're with you. Lord, um, we pray for every church in our community. We pray that you bless them, God. We pray, Lord, for the nonprofits in our city. We pray for the homeless men and women in our city, God. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you protect our brothers and sisters, God. And we just pray that you open up our eyes today and our our ears today, God. Lord, let us absorb and let us hear what you have to say. We love you. We thank you and we praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you should have a notes handout in front of you. I'm gonna go through chapter eight, at least half of it. I'll read a little bit and then I'll go back and break it down to the best of my abilities. Okay, here we go. Starting at verse two, all right? At dawn, he went to the temple complex again and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and he started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, my Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go and from now on do not sin anymore. So if you look at your Bible, if you have a Bible with you, a lot of your Bibles will have that section in brackets. If you notice, there are brackets around that section. The reason there are brackets around that section is John didn't write it. It's in John's gospel, but more than likely it was added possibly centuries after the gospel of John was written. How do we know that? We know because the earliest manuscripts of John do not contain the story. And so more than likely it was not written by him. It wasn't even written in his style of writing. It was more written in the style of Luke, and it actually interrupts the story. So it's kind of thrown in there in a way where it interrupts the narrative. Now, That doesn't mean that the Bible is bad. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. And it doesn't mean that it's inappropriate to have this in there. It's just simply saying that John probably didn't write this. Someone else added it in later who knew the story and inserted that in. And most scholars believe that this did happen. So this is how we're gonna treat it. We're not gonna treat it as something that John wrote, but we're gonna treat it as an historical event, okay? As a historical event that did take place. So let's talk about it a little bit. Okay, so the Pharisees, In the middle of Jesus teaching in the temple complex, right in the center of town in kind of the most high traffic area, as he's teaching probably a large group of people, his disciples are with him, the Pharisees barge in and they have a woman that they have caught in adultery. They kind of put her into the center. Chances are she's probably either wearing no clothes or very little clothes. She's humiliated. She's embarrassed. And what they were trying to do is they were trying to set up a situation where Jesus would have to make a decision and it would, it would either kind of, uh, I almost said a bad word, darn him if he did or darn him if he didn't, right? And so they wanted to make Jesus choose. You're either going to break one of the laws of Moses by not stoning this woman or you're going to break one of the Roman laws, stone her, and everyone's going to think you're harsh, right? That you're heartless that you would have this woman stoned in public. So they thought they had him cornered, right? And so what we see is this. This was not an accident that you ca- that they caught this woman in adultery. This was a setup, right? They had set this scenario up. The motives of the accusers, the Pharisees, was entrapment and it was political. So more than likely what they did is they had coerced this woman into meeting up with this man. I guess they were both married or maybe she was married. Whatever it is, they set up this adulterous um, encounter with each other. Two people watched it because you had to have two witnesses of adultery to bring someone and accuse this of them. And so they set this whole thing up. And so when you go back and research adultery and how people were stoned for this in the Old Testament. A lot of people would bring that up and say, wow, that seems really extreme. Well, a couple of things that it brings up is this. One, God must have obviously thought that marriage was a big deal, right? And so there was very big punishments for people that did not uh, uh, hold faithfully to their marital vows. The other thing is this. People being stoned for adultery would have been very few and far between. Uh, It's not really an everyday thing that two people happen to witness adultery, right? Like you're just kind of walking by and you're just like, oh, hey, buddy, look, like they're having an adulterous relationship right now. That doesn't happen a whole lot. So the other thing is this, they would not just stone the woman, they would also stone the man according to Moses' laws. Not just that, if you were the one that brought the person, if you were the one accusing someone of infidelity, you would have to be the first one to pick up a rock and stone them right? And I wouldn't want to do that, even if I didn't like somebody. I don't want to murder somebody. So this didn't happen a whole lot, okay? So what the Pharisees did, or what they thought they did, is they thought they had him cornered pretty good. And so they kind of put him in between a rock and a hard place, and they're waiting for Jesus's response. And they're like, we got him now. And so what does Jesus do? He ignores them, and he starts to bend down, and he starts scribbling something into the dirt. Now, we don't know what he wrote. We can just speculate. I know that in the book of Jeremiah, it says that the names of those that deny Jesus will be written in the dirt. That's kind of interesting. But we don't know what he wrote. What I hope he was writing was I hope he was writing the sins of all the people watching this scenario, right? I hope he was writing the names of all the Pharisees that had also committed adultery, but it was secret. And so maybe he was exposing them. But whatever he wrote, we don't know. We can only speculate. So we don't know what he wrote in the dirt, but we do know what he said. And after he gets done scribbling in the dirt, they keep persisting, right? Jesus, you got an answer, you got an answer, you got an answer. And after pushing and pushing and pushing, he stands up and he says, the one who doesn't have sin, let them be the first one to, to, to throw stones at her. So whoever's perfect, go for it. Now, this response was perfect. It did not break the Jewish law. It did not break the Roman law, and it exposed that these people's hearts were bad, right? That they also had faults in them. And so this perfect response completely deflated the situation. Now, what we often do when we say, let them who is perfect cast the first stone or let them who has no sin cast the first stone, we're usually trying to get like a a, a pass on our sin. We're trying to dodge responsibility for the sin that we've committed. And that's the thing is Jesus is not skirting sin. He's not going around sin. As he bends down to scribble some more in the dirt after he says this, what it does is it lets the mob have time to think about what they're doing. Okay, wait a second, I'm not perfect either. Should I be casting the stone since I have not always lived the way I should? So here's the thing, do we call out sin? Yes, adultery's wrong. We should not commit adultery. But when we think about how we have also fallen short, when we do address people in sin, we're a little bit more empathetic. We're a little bit more merciful. We're a little bit more gracious. So when people come into my office and they tell me that they're struggling with some kind of sexual sin, of course I say that is wrong, but I have also struggled. Is it wrong what you're doing? Absolutely it's wrong, but I've been there too. So let's walk through this together. Let's walk on the right track together. And so once this arrogant mob, right, these cocky religious people who bring this woman, they hate Jesus so much, they're willing to have a, have a woman be killed publicly. That's how much they hate Jesus. So they come, and once Jesus does this, imagine what happens when they start realizing that they can't pick up a stone, right? They start trickling away, and they start going away. Now listen, this doesn't imply that everyone who follows Jesus is perfect. We are not perfect, but what this implies is is we know that we're not perfect. And when we make mistakes, we ask for God's forgiveness. There's an old cliche saying, right? Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. They understand grace. They understand what it means to go to God and to have him forgive us. And because we've experienced grace, Christians at the Experience Community Church, I hope you hear this and it resonates. Because we've experienced grace, we should be the least judgmental people on planet Earth. Amen? Amen. Right? The number one reason why you have a hard time getting your friends and family to church, according to a study done by George Barna, the number one reason you have a hard time getting people to church is they think we are judgmental. That's what they think. That is a study that was done. But the Bible says this. James says that we are to speak and act as though people who are judged by the law of freedom. What that means is we should speak and act in a way of people who've been forgiven, who've seen grace. We've been judged by freedom. God has given us freedom. And so we should act accordingly to that. And if we're going to err on a side of judgment or mercy, James says that mercy triumphs over judgment. Does that mean we don't make judgments? No. But mercy, if we're going to err on the side, we err on the side of being merciful to people gracious to people, loving to people. And so Jesus now approaches the woman, right? The accusers have started to trickle off, right? And they're gone. And now we're left with some of the crowd, the disciples and Jesus, right? And they're right there in the center, he and this woman. And so Jesus now approaches the woman and he says, hey, where are your accusers? Where are they? Where, where are the men that brought you out here? She looks around, they're not here. He says, well, who condemns you? Well, no one. And he says, well, neither do I. I don't condemn you either. Here's the thing. John three seventeen says that Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came us to save us from condemnation. Now, here's where the confusion is. A lot of people say, well, don't condemn me. Don't call out my sin. No, no, no. By me calling out your sin, by Jesus calling out our sin, saves us from condemnation. Sin puts us in a grip. Sin bounds us up. It, it, it binds us up. It puts chains around us. And Jesus came to invite us to be free of that grip, But if we're gonna be free of that grip, we have to turn our back on our sinful nature. So how did this woman receive the grace of God? Listen, let's go back, let's think of it like a play, okay? So you have the crowd, right? The Pharisees, the bad guys, right? They come in, they put this woman in center stage with Jesus. The disciples are behind Jesus. In this scene, everyone in the scene is broken. Everybody, except Jesus, right? Everyone in the scene, the crowd, the Pharisees, the disciples, the woman, everyone has made mistakes. The difference though between the one that received grace, the woman, right, the one who committed this horrible thing, the one that receives grace is the woman and the ones who do not receive grace are the Pharisees. Why? Because she acknowledged that she had a problem and they would not acknowledge that they had a problem. So how do we receive God's grace? God's grace can only be received if we recognize that we need it. Man, you guys are awfully quiet. So Jesus said, I came for the sick, not for the healthy. The thing is, is we're all sick. Some of us just pretend like we're not. And so Jesus came for the ones that acknowledge that they are sick. He came for the ones who would depend on him, listen, and make a clean break from a sinful lifestyle a clean break, that we are to move away from the sinful lifestyle that we had. And this is a gift for everyone. This is going to push us a little bit. As Christians, me too, I'm included in this, we love the underdog, right? We love the poor. We love the impoverished. We love the good intention sinner. Man, they did the best they could, but they keep falling. They're addicts. You know, we, we love those people and we get behind them. And that's good. We need to. We need to get behind those people. Jesus got behind those people. But what we leave out is the fact that Jesus died on the cross so all would have the invitation to be saved. It says in John that it is God's will that no one perish, that no one go to hell. So when we say as Christians that we love all people, that means we are called to love all people. We're called to love the extreme right-wing nut. We're called to love the extreme left-wing nut. We're called to love the crooked politician, the racist, the misogynist, the sexist, the arrogant, the murderers, not just the oppressed, but we're called to love the oppressor. We're so busy loving the poor and hating the rich, we forget that it's a sin to hate them. That we're to love all people, not just the oppressed, but the ones who do, Jesus said, pray for those that persecute you and love those that hate you. That's what Jesus said. That's what it means to truly love all people. Okay, next part. So then Jesus spoke to them again. He said, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, "'You are testifying about yourself. "'Your testimony is not valid. "'Even if I testify about myself,' Jesus replied, "'my testimony is valid "'because I know where I came from "'and I know where I'm going. "'But you don't know where I come from "'or where I'm going. "'You judge by human standards "'and I judge no one. "'And if I do judge, my judgment is true "'because I'm not alone, "'but I and the Father who sent me "'judge together.'" Even in your law, it is written that the witness of two men is valid. I am the one that testifies about myself and the father who testifies about me. They asked him, where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these things by the treasury while teaching in the temple complex, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now, I'll get to this a little bit more here in a second. There are several times in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am. There are seven extremely distinct phrases called I am phrases. I'll get to that here in a second. But what Jesus is saying, and he's already said, is that in order for us to live, we need water, bread, and light. Okay, that's how we need that to live physically, right? Water, food, light. Jesus is saying to live spiritually, you need the living water. That's the Holy Spirit. We have some coming through the ceiling this morning. We have the living water. We have the bread of life, which is Jesus Christ. And then we have the light, which is what Jesus brings, right? So in order to live for eternity, we need the water, the bread, and now the light. Now, if you were a Jew reading that, the first place your brain would go would be Exodus 13. You should go back and read this tonight if you get a little bit of free time. In Exodus 13, what God would do when the children of Israel were coming from Egypt through the Mount Sinai Peninsula or through the Sinai Peninsula to Jerusalem or to the promised land, Israel, he would show up at night as a flame, as a huge pillar of fire, and it would light the way and show them where to go. That's what Jesus does for us. In order for us to navigate this dark life, he shows up as a light and he shows us where we need to go. And so the Pharisees, they couldn't take Jesus' word for this, right? They couldn't just listen and take his word for it. So they said, give us some proof. Give us some proof. Who else can testify on your behalf? Now, we already know that Jesus has given proof. Not only has he done amazing miracles, not only does he teach the word with more authority than anyone that's taught the word, not only that, but the entire Old Testament testifies about Jesus. Jesus. It gives prophecies that he was fulfilling right in front of their eyes. So the problem wasn't, is there sufficient proof of Jesus? The problem was is that they were unwilling to listen. They were unwilling to learn. This is still the problem today. Because people's hearts are hard and because their minds are closed, they misconstrue the words of Jesus. This still goes on. Well, I think Jesus would do this. You don't know Jesus. You haven't studied about Jesus. You're not open to who the real Jesus is. And so in last chapter, Jesus actually tells us to judge. If you were here last week, right? Jesus kind of drops the mic and says, hey, you are to judge, but not by outward appearances, but by righteous judgment. In verse 15, he says, why don't judge? Well, okay, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. But if you study a little bit, this is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus one day will take on the role of judge. He hasn't done that yet. What I mean is there will come a time at the end of time where Jesus will sit on the throne and everyone will be judged according to the works that they've done and the faith that they've put in Him. right? And you'll be judged either to live in eternity in heaven or live in eternity apart from God in hell. One day he will take on that role. He hasn't taken on that role, He hasn't taken on that role yet. That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't make judgments. He makes judgments about other things. And what he's saying is, when he makes those judgments, he's in perfect alignment with the Father perfect alignment. And so when he's talked about how he was in perfect alignment with God, what Jesus was doing is he was making his identity extremely clear. Here's the thing, John's gospel, any of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they leave no ambiguity. They leave no wiggle room for the identity of Jesus. If anyone tells you who Jesus is, you have to verify it by the only book specifically written about the life of Jesus by a firsthand account, that is the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have to come to a definitive conclusion on who Jesus is. And there's only three choices. You guys have heard me teach this before. C.S. Lewis and his wonderful book called Mere Christianity poses the question, who is Jesus? It has to be one of three things. Either Jesus is a pathological liar, because Jesus walked around telling everyone he was God, right? So Jesus walked around telling everyone, I and the Father are one, I am the great I am. He said these things. So if you don't believe what he said, he has to be a liar. The other option is, if he's not a liar, he's just bat crap crazy, right? Right? So Jesus walked around telling everyone that he was the creator, that he was there before the foundations of the world, all this stuff. So if he's not a pathological liar, he just must be nuts. And then the other option is he must be telling the truth. So if someone comes up to me and says, well, I believe Jesus was just a really good teacher, but not the son of God. He couldn't have been a really good teacher because he walked around lying all the time. He couldn't be. So you have to make a definitive stance on who Jesus is. He is liar, lunatic, or he is Lord. And listen, there is a certain peak of arrogance. There is an astounding level of ignorance and arrogance when one tries to make someone into something that they don't even say they are. So when Jesus says that he is this, and we try to shape him into kind of being like this, well, I believe Jesus like dipped out to the Eastern part of the world and studying under Buddha for a while and came back. And, but that, there's nothing to support that. And it's extremely arrogant to make Jesus into anything that the Bible doesn't say he is, right? Man, you guys are so quiet. So they look at him and they say, well, where is your father? You say you're in alignment with the father. Where's, where's your dad at, Right? And Jesus didn't even bother to answer that question. Why? Because they didn't really care. He told them over and over and over again where he's from and what he's doing and who sent him and all these things. But they were so interested in just getting him caught. And they were so fixated on the rules and the laws that they didn't know who God was anymore. They were so fixated on religion. This is another problem with us, guys. We're so fixated on how we do church. We don't even know who Jesus is anymore. We don't even know who God is anymore. And so the Christian faith is simple. You want to know how how simple the Christian faith is? This. The Christian faith is this. Build a relationship with God, build a relationship with other people, and do it according to how the Bible tells us. That is it. Build a relationship with God, build a relationship with other people, and do it the way the Bible tells us. Well, Corey, where in the heck do you get that from? Jesus said it. When they came up to Jesus and said, what is the most important thing a person can do? What is the most important command of God? They asked Jesus. This is what he said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. That's the greatest and most important thing you can do, Jesus says. And then he adds something. He goes, and then the second one is similar. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And everything that has ever been written, listen, this entire book, Jesus said, look at it right there. This entire book points to two simple things. Love God, Love people, and we know that as Christians, right? What do Christians do? We love God and we love people. The problem is, is we have no idea what love is anymore. No idea, right? Twenty-something-year-old girl walks up to me and she goes, "I met this boy last week. I'm in love," and I'm like, "You're not in love. You don't know his middle name, right? That's not love. That's not a biblical definition of love, right?" Well, I love hot dogs, right? No, you don't love hot dogs. You wouldn't lay your life down for them right? <laughs> I guess they're really good, right? Really good bratwurst or something. But anyways, we throw around the word love so casually and so flippantly, we have no idea what it means anymore. And the world portrays love to us, and it is not love. It is not love. And so what we need to do is we need to go into the Bible, and we need to realize, and we need to rediscover, and we need to recognize what the Bible says love is. 1 Corinthians 13, Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not self-serving, it keeps no records of wrongs. We need to go into the scripture and find out what love is, true agape, deep love. And we are to love God like that, and we are to love people like that. Simple stuff, right? Okay, last part. I got an amen, thank you. I was saved in a Pentecostal church, man, they used to just like stand the whole time, it was crazy, so I kind of got spoiled. (laughs) <laughs> then he said to them again, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, I'm going where you can't come. You are below, he told them, and I am from above. You are of this world and I'm not of this world. 24 is important. If you mark in your Bible, Mark 24, this is very definitive. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you? They questioned. Precisely what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true. And what I've heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know he was speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father has taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, because I always do what pleases Him, okay? Now, here's another big thing that we do not like to talk about, okay? We do not like to talk about this. There is no escape from the laws of God. When Jesus came, he set the definitive standard of righteousness. He is the one that set the standard. He is the one that came to fulfill and finalize and seal the law of God, right? And if one follows Jesus, if one, for everyone in this room, if you claim to follow Jesus, and if you claim to believe in the Bible, the Bible leaves no room for universalism, none. If you don't know what that is, universalism is the belief that as long as we're good people, right? As long as we're just good, as long as we're not genocidal maniacs, as long as we're not child molesters, as long as we're good, we will go to heaven. And that does not align itself with Jesus' words. It does not align itself. Not just the idea of universalism, the whole idea of a second-chance gospel. I, this is going to hurt some of your feelings, but the left-behind books, that is terrible theology, not biblical theology. This idea that everyone's going to be zapped instantaneously and then they're all going to be standing there, just like, Oh, crud, I should get my life together. You know, like, it's not going to be like that. We have one shot at this life, at this temporal life, and the only solution to getting to the next life, the eternal life, is Jesus Christ. And there is a heresy that is starting to build in the Christian church, not non-believers and believers. There is a heresy that is building up that one day everyone will go to heaven. And when you read the words of Jesus, that if you do not believe that he is the savior, you will die in your sins, which means you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is Jesus's words. I know we don't like to talk about that. I know that's not popular. I know that's not what grows big churches, but it is the gospel. And so the real sin that we need to be aware of in all of our lives, all of us, is the unwillingness to completely believe in Jesus and what he says. Now, listen, listen, we all make mistakes. All of us are going to make mistakes. We're going to, to, to periodically sin and do things that God doesn't like. And if we continue to do that, that does put a divide between us and God. Here's the beauty, though. If we have a relationship with Jesus, if we commune with Jesus, if we believe in repentance, when we do things that are re- in rebellion to God, we will feel conviction And there's a problem with churches who are like, guys, we never want you to feel guilt. We never want you to feel conviction. I want you to feel guilt. If you're cheating on your wife, I want you to be guilty, feel bad about that. I want the Holy Spirit to convict you about that. Because if we don't feel convicted, if we don't feel guilty, we're not gonna change. I don't want you to drown in that because once God's forgiven you and once you've made amends with those you've hurt, you don't need to feel guilty and ashamed anymore. But there is a conviction that God gives us that's a good thing. So we need to be convicted. The problem is this though when we choose a lifestyle of sin, When we choose, when we know what's right, when we know what God tells us to do, but we say, God, I'm not going to live that way, I'm going to live this way, we move into a realm that Paul called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which means we have consciously divorced ourselves from God. Now, I know a lot of people argue about, can you lose your salvation? I don't know if you can lose your salvation. Like one day you're like, oh, crap, where did I put that salvation? I don't think it's like that, right? (laughs) Ah, It's in my wallet, you know, I, I don't... I don't think we can just lose our salvation, but I think we can consciously choose to live a lifestyle in rebellion to God and forfeit our salvation. That's what I believe. I believe we can choose to walk away from him. And that's a scary, dangerous place that some people put themselves in. So Jesus says this. He says, you must believe in I am, that I am the I am. Verse 23 through 24 seems almost like Jesus is probably getting emotional at this point. He's begging them on some way. He says, if you guys don't believe in me, you're going to be eternally separated from me. You're going to be damned apart from me. Now, when Jesus calls himself the I am, this is extremely significant. This is essentially what got Jesus killed. Now, if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, which is another really cool chapter of the book of Exodus... Moses is out one day in the wilderness, he comes across a burning bush, but the bush is not being consumed by the fire. You don't see that every day, right? So he walks up to the burning bush, and from the burning bush, the voice of God speaks to Moses. Some of you have heard the story. And he says, Moses, you're going to lead my, my people out of Egypt into the promised land. And so Moses hears this, and he says, okay, who do I say sent them? Like, who, do I, who can I go tell them that, that sent me to go do this? And God's voice said, tell them that I am sent you. Now, what got Jesus killed is when he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish council, and they asked him, who are you? Jesus' response was, I am. He was claiming to be the exact same God that spoke to Moses through the burning bush. Jesus was claiming his identity as God. That's what got him killed. And so what this leads us into is this. Jesus was saying that if you don't accept me, you're not accepting the God of the Old Testament. If you don't know me, you don't know the Father, is what he says. And so what we learn is this. Physical death separates our soul from our body, right? Spiritual death separates our soul from God. Physical death, soul from body, spiritual death, soul from God. And the problem isn't, do we believe in hell? 80% of America believes in hell. You go talk to eight out of 10 people, they believe that there is a literal hell. Whether that's a literal lake of fire, whether that's, it doesn't really matter. I know that this, I don't know if hell is literally fire or not. I don't know if that's an analogy. I really don't care. I do know that hell is an eternal place of separation from God. And if you pull all of the goodness out of humanity, because there's nothing good apart from God, if you pull everything out, whatever hell looks like, it's going to be a really bad place and you don't want to be there. That's the point. And our problem is eight out of 10 people believe that this place exists, but only 9% of those people believe that they could go there. See what I'm saying? No one believes, everyone believes in hell, but no one thinks that they could end up there. Well, hell is for Mussolini and Adolf Hitler and, you know, genocidal maniacs and child molesters. That's who's in hell. And that does not go with the gospel of John. Jesus says, anyone who doesn't accept me will live eternally apart from me not just rapists and murderers and people who've who've annihilated whole cultures and civilizations. Anyone who denies Jesus will be apart from God forever. Guys, that should sober us up a little bit. This is the gospel. This is from the mouth of Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus says is there's only two choices. We only have two different roads that we can travel on. Now listen, I put it up here. You're free to believe whatever the heck you want. You can read all kinds of philosophical books and you can listen to your friends that are probably uneducated and don't have degrees that talk about what their beliefs on God are. You can do all that all you want. But if you get into the Bible, the Bible makes it just, just unbelievably clear. There are two choices. There is light and there is darkness, and those who refuse the light, by default, you end up with the darkness. Now the light is Jesus, and his destiny was to be a sacrifice for us so we could be invited into the light, and the only way that this was made available was through the cross. That is the gospel, guys. If you ever wonder what the gospel is, that's it. Jesus is the light, his destiny was to die for us so he could invite us into the light, and the only way that this was possible, the only way that this fellowship with God is possible, is through the cross. That is it, that is the gospel. And Jesus, looking at the crowd, looking at the Pharisees, he says, I know you guys don't believe me now, but in time, you're gonna know who I am. Now, he's not just referring to what the scripture says, one day, every knee will bow. That's what it says in the scripture. One day, everyone's gonna know who Jesus is. Regardless of what your beliefs are, we're all gonna know one day. But that's not even what he was talking about. He was talking about in just a matter of months, They're going to lift him up on the cross. That's what it says when it says that he will be lifted up. It's a reference to the cross. They will lift him up. And when Jesus dies, it actually says that some of the Roman soldiers fall down and say, surely this was the son of God. Some of the Pharisees that probably were instrumental in having him crucified, the temple will break in half and the holy of holies where the spirit of God, the veil that separates, it's going to be ripped open. And Pharisees, some of the Pharisees are going to say, oh, my Lord, what did we do? What did we do? We see a couple of months after Jesus is resurrected that the Holy Spirit is poured out and thousands upon thousands of people receive the Spirit of God and start a relationship with Christ. And so people are going to know that he is everything he said he is. And here's what's encouraging. After after Jesus said all this, John records that many people started believing. That's encouraging, right? Right? First, it shows that the kingdom of God was advancing as Jesus was speaking. And as we know today, the more we hear the word of God, the more we study and we read the word of God, more people's hearts turn. Guys, that's why the Bible is so important. That's why I'm so bothered The more churches don't just teach the Bible. This time of year, churches are doing the goofiest things to get people to come to church, Right? come dance around with Santa and we'll do family Christmas. And I'm not trying to be a jerk and make fun of those things. But man, this time of the year when we get people in that typically don't come to church, like let's give them the words of Jesus, right? The words that save and change. And when people hear those words, their hearts start to change. And when we apply those words, we start to see that we have a hope. This time of year, I know it's a great time of year, but this time of year, there's a lot of people who are hurting, there's a lot of people don't have a hope. And when they hear the words of Christ, just like Jesus said, when I walk in alignment with God, he does not leave me alone. So even if you have no one this season, if we're walking in alignment with God, if we're walking with Jesus, we're not alone. We're not alone. We have someone with us. So what we learn is this. Our proximity to God, our distance from God, is our choice. It says as we draw near to him, he draws near to us. But if we don't draw near to him, the distance we have between us and God is our choice. So why are we given a choice? People ask me that all the time. If God loves us, Corey, why would he give us a choice? And I said, you just answered your own question. God loves humanity. If I love my wife, if I love my wife, I give her the option to leave. And because she stays, I know that she loves me back. If we got married and I just like chained her to the wall, right? You're mine. You're not going anywhere. That's not love. That's not love. That's control. That's slavery. But because God gives us a choice, it shows his love for humanity. True love offers free will. And we have the choice to either stay or to go. But when we acknowledge that we have a choice, we only have two choices. This is so, guys, this is so vitally important. And I hope you all hear this. We have two choices, the light or the darkness, Jesus or the world, right? And to choose one means we must reject the other, right? Let's use the wedding analogy. To choose my wife, right, to put this ring on and say, till death do us part, means that I reject, hold on to your seats, ladies, all other women, right? (laughs) You're laughing. That makes me feel good. And then it's only men that whistle during these times, right? (laughs) But it's the truth. All of you who are married in here, you know that when you do this marriage ceremony, that means that it's just you and I and no one else. So when we choose to marry our husband, God, right, it means that no other husbands, no other gods are welcome in the equation. It says that God is a jealous God. Just like if my wife is talking to a man more than she talks to me, I'm justified in my jealousy of that. God is jealous of us when we spend more time with other gods than we do with him. To choose him is to reject everything else. Let me tell you a quick story because i got a little bit of time, and you're the 11 o'clock, so I don't have anything to do after this, right? So <laughs> in the Old Testament, one of my favorite stories, the Jews had these really huge adversaries called the Philistines, right? Or the Philistines. The Philistines, uh, they were the guys that had Goliath, right? The, the big guy. The Philistines and the Jews fought on and off over and over and over again. One time, the Jews and the Philistines fought in a war and the Philistines won. And they captured the Ark of the Covenant. If you don't know what that is, uh, Indiana Jones, the, the Germans have it now, but um, that's a joke. <laughs> anyway, so they captured the Ark of the Covenant, right? And the Ark of the Covenant was a representation of the Spirit of God, right? This this big gold box. It had the Ten Commandments in it. It had Aaron's rod in it. It had manna from heaven. This was a big, important thing to the Jews. And they captured this box. So what the Philistines do is they put the Ark of the Covenant in the same temple, the same house, if you will, as their god, Dagon. Dagon was the Philistine god. It was a half-fish, half-man god that they concocted, and they had this huge statue in the temple of Dagon that was about 30 or 40 foot tall. Just to give you perspective, I think the ceiling's about 17 feet, so about twice as tall as the ceiling. Big statue, right? So they put the Ark of the Covenant in there. The Bible says that the day after they did that, they came in and the statue of Dagon had fallen down. That's weird, huh? So they go in there, it probably took a ton of men and ropes and pulleys and all this stuff. They get the statue back up on its foundation and they're just like, okay, you know, that was weird. And so they go and the next day they come back into the temple, the house of Dagon. What has happened? Dagon not only had fallen over, but the head and the hands had been severed. Moral of the story is this, God will not occupy the same space as another God. He will not do it. So our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God will not share a space with our other gods. He will not do it. You have to choose one or the other. Jesus said no person can have two masters because he will love one more than the other. We must choose. Now, if we choose Jesus, I'm just going to be honest with all of you in here. I'm always honest. To choose Jesus is not easy. It takes commitment, sacrifice, submission, and discipline. Oh, I don't want to do that. Well, if you don't want to do those things, you don't want to have kids. You don't want to get married. You don't want to succeed in any way. You don't want to be successful in life. You don't want to have anything of any value. Because anything of any value takes commitment, sacrifice, submission, and discipline, anything. Why would our relationship with the most important thing ever be any different? It takes commitment, sacrifice, submission, and discipline. That's how we build a strong relationship with God. That's how we get closer to God through those things, okay? So we choose to be distant. If we're not feeling God, it's not because there's a problem with God, it means there's a problem with us. We're the reason why we're not feeling intimate and close to him. But if we choose to be closer to him, if we choose the light, listen, if we choose to go down that path, we will not be left alone. We will not be left to our own devices. If you're struggling to be a good parent, if you let the Holy Spirit of God fill you up, God will give you the supernatural ability to be a better mom. To be a better dad, to be a better spouse, to be a better child, to be a better employee. We have help. We don't go through, we don't navigate through this insane, dark life that a lot of us are in in the middle of. We don't navigate through that without help. When we have the Holy Spirit in us, just like the Jews going through the desert at night, God is a light for us. He illuminates the path. We have the power. Listen, guys, all of us are going to go through storms in this life. Whenever people come to me and they're like, oh man, life is rough. Life is rough for everyone, right? We've all been hurt. When people come up and say, oh, the the church hurt me. Grow up like we've all been scarred. We've all been damaged. We've all been hurt. Life can be a storm. And if we don't have Christ in us, it will tear us apart. But if the Holy Spirit is in us, listen, we have the strong tower inside of us. We have the anchor inside of us. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in me. So when the storms come, I can put my heels down and I can withstand the storm until the time comes where the Bible says Jesus will come back and Jesus says, I'm sorry, John writes in Revelation, but it's the words of Jesus, that there will no longer be any more night. There will come a time when that tension will be relieved. Jesus says he will come And there will be a time where there will be no more tears, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more death or famine. All those things will seem like a distant memory to us. And until that time comes, if we have God in us, we can withstand it. We can stand strong. We'll just be honest, guys. Let's be honest. We often wonder why we feel separated from God, right? There's this disconnect between me and the Lord. Guys, I'm gonna say this to you because I love you and I'm guilty of it too, I do it too. People come to me all the time, they say, Corey, I just don't have the time. Guys, I'm just. this sounds like a, such a jerk thing to say, all of us have 24 hours a day. You're not gonna run into someone, you're just like, oh, wait a second, you have 38 hours a day? God's crazy, what galaxy are you from, right? We all have 24 hours a day. The problem isn't time. The problem is priority. That is the problem. That is the problem. We're all busy. We all have things to do. The problem is priority. And the reason why many of us, including me, guys, the reason why many of us feel so distant from the Lord is because instead of spending 30 minutes a day reading our Word, we spend two hours on Facebook. Instead of spending 15 minutes of prayer, we spend an hour and a half watching, most of the time, violent, sex-driven media. And we fill our heads. Guys, I know you guys think I'm so legalistic right now. Jesus said this in Matthew. He said that what we take in through our eye contaminates the whole soul. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said that. That's before television. Jesus said that before the internet. That what we take in contaminates and makes our whole soul dark. Now, in a day and age when any of us can pull out our phone and look at God knows what at any time, I'm just going to let you know, the reason why many of us feel very distant from God is we have put so much garbage in between us and God. We have used our time so poorly. We have not been good stewards with the time that God has given us. And we have convoluted the frequency We've put so much around our antenna that we can't pick up the signal anymore. And I'll tell you this, guys. If you commit to this 40, and this isn't a huge sales uh, uh, ploy for the 40-day fast. If you were to commit the first 40 days of 2017 to cutting all that garbage out, I'm not saying all of it's even bad. Man, there's like, like, I love The Office, right? But if I watch The Office three hours a day and never read my Bible... I'm going to preach a little bit longer. You know why a lot of guys, listen, you know, why, you know why a lot of us struggle with depression? It's not because we need medication or there's some chemical imbalance. It's because we stay up until two o'clock in the morning looking at porn when we know we have to wake up at six o'clock in the morning and go to work. So not only are we filling ourselves up with garbage, we're sleep deprived because we haven't stewarded our time well. And so what do we do? Instead of being disciplined and going back to prayer and the word of God, we just get a doctor to give us something to take. Anyone feel convicted yet. I've been there. I've done it. I've taken Prozac and Zoloft before. I've done those things. And I'm not saying, some of you who do have legitimate physical things, I'm not trying to offend you or, or, or get under your grill. But we're looking for a pill to save us. We're looking for a quick fix. We're looking for someone to say something encouraging and never make us feel bad about anything. Thinking that our lives will change. If I can just read five things to do every morning when I wake up. What we need to do, guys, is we need to close in the proximity of our, our closeness, our, 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 our distance from God. And we do that through prayer, through reading the word of God, through treating other people the way we want to be treated, to prioritizing our time in a better way. That's how we draw closer to him. And if we keep beating around the bush... And if we keep filling up our lives with distractions and garbage, we're never gonna get anything different out of our lives than distractions and garbage. What goes in just comes right out. What goes in just comes right out. I love you guys. I love you to death. But I'm not, I, we need to step up to the plate and know that if we're not feeling the spirit of God, it's not because God's like playing golf right now. It's because we're not in tune, and we're not taking the steps to be in tune with him. His frequency, there's nothing wrong with his frequencies. It's us, man. It's our antennas. We're the problem, not God. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, forgive me if I've been rude today, God. Forgive me if I've been harsh. God, that's not my intention, Lord. God knows I've messed up. You know, Lord, I've messed up a million times. God, if anyone's a sinner in this room, it's me. I've done so much wrong in my life. Father, Lord, as we take communion today, as we remember, God, that you gave your body and your blood so that we would be saved is we remember, Lord, that you went to amazing lengths, God, to create a channel, a pathway, a, a frequency, God, for us to be connected with the Father. If we understand, God, that you came to pave the way for us, Lord, I hope you guys are listening to me this morning. God, I pray, Lord, that you speak to our hearts and our minds today and whatever is getting in the way, whatever is coming between us and you. Convict us about that today, God whatever poor time management, whatever garbage or what, whatever distractions that may be separating us, God, Lord, convict us and have us have the strength to remove those things, to remove those things so we can be closer to you, God, so we can move in close, so we can feel your spirit, so we can hear your voice, God, so we can have the wisdom and the strength and the knowledge that we need, God, to navigate through this life. Lord Jesus, if anyone needs prayer today, God, Lord, let them come up here and let their brothers and sisters, God, pray for them. Lord, as they take communion, I pray that we approach that with a repentant heart, God, that we ask you to forgive us and then we're welcome to take communion. And I pray, Lord, that as, at, the, at the close of 2016, that you just give us the wisdom and the knowledge, Lord, to step into next year, God, with a clearer mind, a clearer mind, a more focused mind, a more in tune with you mind and that we can serve you and glorify you, God. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, Jesus. Keep your hand on us today, God, and keep your hand on us this season, Lord, and bless my brothers and sisters, God, and thank you, Jesus, for everything you've done. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you guys so much for putting up with me today.